things that make you go, hmm. <laughs> I'm going to miss that next week as we uh, conclude the series today. Good morning. My name is Pastor Dale. Good morning. Hey, that was strong. That was good. You guys are ready. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3 today. We're going to wrap up our series on great miracles of the Bible. Things that kind of when you read them, you go, hmm, how'd that happen? And why did that happen? And, and we're using it to learn God's Word. We're also learning it uh, to enable to kind of think, uh, help us learn how to think about Scripture as we study some of these stories. They're written by God. They're inspired by God. They're history. But they're history with purpose. And that's what we're going to explore today. So welcome to Seacoast. If you're new, I'd love to meet you in the plaza between uh, services. So let's pray together, okay? Join me. Let's pray. Father God, thanks for your word. Thanks that we have a God that loves us enough to communicate to us. Thank you that we have a God that uh, uh, is a God that surprises people. Who's unlimited in his uh, capacity. But also, Father, sometimes there's a bit of a mystery as we try to figure out, why do you do that? What's going on? So, Father, give us wisdom as we study this uh, great Old Testament story, but help us bring it into today. That's my prayer. We don't want to just study it to understand it. We want to study it to live it out. So, teach us about the faith that stands firm even when it's under incredible pressure. That's my prayer in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to imagine for a minute that you are young. For some of you, that's easy because you are, right? So if you're young, raise your hand, okay? Yeah, some of you are there. So I raised my hand, but anyway, okay, that's because I'm living in denial. But I feel young, okay? So, you know, if you're young. Now, if you're also good-looking, successful, and smart, raise your hand. Oh, come on now. Some of you, I think you qualify, okay? We're going to study a story today about a group of young, good-looking, intelligent, above-the-curve people who had come to faith in their God, but, in, but experienced incredible pressure. Now imagine for a minute that that's you, okay? If you're not there, kind of use your imagination. You are young, you are attractive, you are intelligent, you break the curve at school, you're a graduate of the best universities, you're among the best and brightest of your culture. Now imagine that another people come in and take over that culture, and imagine the leader of that other people group decides, you know something, the best way to help this, uh, help me uh, rule over this nation that I've just conquered is I want to take these best and brightest from among them and I want to transport them and I want to take them many hundreds of miles away. I want to plant them in the middle of a different culture with a different faith, a different way of living, a different value system. And I'm going to give them an education that orients them to really understand my culture, not the one they grew up in. That's exactly what happens in today's story. So imagine that was you. Imagine that's you today. Maybe, maybe imagine you weren't. Maybe, maybe someone didn't conquer America and take you away. But imagine if you went to live in another culture where you, your faith as a Christian is not only a minority faith, it's virtually non-existent. You know, just a handful of other believers, followers of Jesus Christ. But imagine because you're among the best and the brightest, you begin to succeed and people begin to recognize your gifts and your skills. And, and, and in fact, the very leaders of that nation begin to acknowledge 
your giftedness and, and how, wow, this person has incredible skills and abilities. And, and next thing you know, you're offered a government job. And then after that, you begin to move up the ladder in terms of responsibility. And now you're working for the government of that country and, and you're just serving. You're serving because you love your God, Jesus Christ. You love Christ. You love the true God. But yet you're serving in this other culture, this other land, because you want to be faithful and do your best and, and you begin to excel. Imagine that happens to be an Islamic culture. Imagine that all of a sudden you go to bed one night and you wake up the next night and you turn on the, the news and what you hear... What you hear on the news is that overnight there was a coup. Overnight there was a, there was a rebellion. Overnight there was a switch in leadership. And overnight, and it does happen today, there's now a new boss in town. There's a new Islamic radical culture that has come to power. Now imagine you're invited, therefore, the next day to a meeting of all government authorities and, and leaders, and, and they gather you in this auditorium, and they gather you... And, and, and they give a, an impassioned speech about how now we need to be a land in which we are honoring God and in which Allah is the one true God and Muhammad is His prophet. And you're given a very simple choice because before you can realize what's happening, they say, we are going to bring you up one row at a time and we're going to ask you that question and you need to bow down and declare in the direction of Mecca that Allah is my God and Muhammad is my prophet. That's your choice. That's your challenge. And then they say one of two things is going to happen because we're going to videotape the whole experience. And we either videotape your declaration of your allegiance to Allah and Muhammad, his prophet, or we will videotape your execution right on this spot because that's your choice. Because we need to purify our government. Now, immediately, what would you be thinking? What would you be voting for? Huh? Answer? You're wanting to say, can I just get a one-way ticket? Anywhere. But you're told, you know something? Leaving is not an option. It comes to your time in line. They put a gun to your head. And you're asked to deny your faith in Christ and affirm your allegiance to Muhammad. It's your choice. What would you do? Now it's kind of easy to know the right answer, right? Most of us kind of know the Jesus answer. Oh, I'd, I'd just let him shoot me. Really? What would you do if your faith was put to that sort of a test by the culture that you live in. We're going to look at a story today in which that is exactly what happened. The year is going to be about 600 or so B.C. The place is going to be a place that we hear about in the news all the time. A place back then that was called Babylon. The Middle East. The followers at that time were followers of the God that we worship. Jehovah God, the one true God of Israel. Because in about 605 B.C., there was a new man in town in that part of the world. In fact, in the entire 
region. And the new power in town was Babylon, and Babylon had swept through that area. In fact, in 605, there was a very decisive uh, event. It started really in about 612. Remember, we talked last week about the power of the Assyrians in the story we studied last week with Jonah, the prophet. Well, now the Assyrians are no longer out. The Assyrians are out. The Babylonians are in. In 612, uh, the Babylonians had a tremendous defeat of Assyria. In 605, just seven years later, they had a major conflict. They, they put down the other powerhouse in the region named Egypt. And now at 605, they march north out of Egypt and they are on a roll and they come to, they come to uh, the southern kingdom of Israel. They come to Judah. And the king kind of realizes he's under siege and they are not going to win. And he works a deal and, and, and they come under the rulership of Babylon. And that led to the first of three deportations, very much like what I just described, where the Babylonians had a tradition that when they would conquer a country, in order to help rule that country long term, they had a very smart strategy, get the very best and brightest leaders of the country especially the young ones and deport them over to babylon give them a babylonian uh, education uh, immerse them in the religion and the literature and the thinking of the babylonian culture and and, and and in doing so we're going to take their best and brightest and and we'll build them as being future leaders who will be loyal to babylon there was a guy named daniel and three of his friends they even changed their names to Babylonian names to make sure that they, uh, they would begin to think of themselves, their very identity. They were trying to change the way they thought about themselves. Their names were changed to the three names that you'll recognize. Can you say them with me? They're great names if you ever have triplets. Okay, here we go. God gives you three boys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I like the Abednego name especially. Kind of got a nice rhyme to it, you know. Okay, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, along with Daniel, are taken away, and they're, and they're taken away because of their high potential. So you need to see that before we study the passage in chapter 3. In chapter 1, here's how it's described. Open your Bibles, look at chapter 1, verse 4. It says, They were to take away from Israel some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect... Now, that's a lot of you, right? When you were young, you were saying, man, this per person is, is perfect. No, no deflect, okay? Good-looking. <laughs> they were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom. They're not just good at one thing. They're good at a lot of things. They're endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans or Babylonians. And the king appointed for them a daily ration of his own food and drink and everything else. So, so the story begins there with these young men, probably around 605, being deported in the first of three deportations. There were three waves in which the Babylonians took the very best and brightest and took them away. The first was historically pegged at about 605. The second was about, I think it was around, uh, around 597 as you're moving forward B.C., and the third was around 586 after they totally sacked Jerusalem. We believe Daniel and his three buddies were taken away in probably that first deportation. 
And now we pick up the story because what I want you to see is that these are not like Jewish slaves that have been taken to Babylon and and they're living like slaves in chains. Yes, they were taken away against their will. They were deported to Babylon, but these were deported because they had leadership capacity. And in fact, the story goes on, and we don't have time to teach the details, but in chapters 1 and 2 leading up to this, they grow in influence. Because they serve their God that they worship, but they also serve their job. And they do a good job, and they're placed in, placed in areas of responsibility. And, and then God does a miracle in chapter 2 that really gets the attention of Nebuchadnezzar, the leader. And then he, he places Daniel and his three friends, Shadmach, Meshach, and Abednego, in areas of great responsibility over the province of Babylon. Most likely they each were given leadership to rule over a major district or city. So you've got to see, these are people that are powerful, political people, probably being well compensated for what they do, probably living in a lot of luxury. They're successful in life, even though they're still true to their God of Israel. These are not poor Jews. These are successful, influential people in the government circles. And they climb the ladder. And now it sets up our story. So you've got to picture that to understand the significance of chapter 3. Here we go. I'll just read it and tell it to you as I do. Chapter 3, verse 1. Follow with me if you have a Bible. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, he made an image of gold. Now catch this. A height of which was 60 cubits. Cubits around 18 inches. So that's about 90 feet tall. Nine stories high, okay, is this gold image. 60 cubits, about nine feet or six cubits wide, so about 90 feet high, nine feet in diameter, this, this huge idol that he puts up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to the assembly, and he names all these different political, uh, power, political positions, satraps and prefects and governors and counselors and treasurers and judges and magistrates and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And then all these powerful people come together. All the rulers were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, all peoples, nations, men of every language. Because these are all people now of even different language groups that have been gathered together because they were a powerful empire and he says you all need to do this he said to you the command is given that at the moment you hear the sound of of the of 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 the band and the band was big okay the horn the flute the lyre the to trigon i'm not we don't have a trigon on our band but we need to get one matt okay uh you know but a trigon the sultry the bagpipe and all kinds of music you are to fall down and worship the golden image that nebuchadnezzar the king has set up But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of the fire of the furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of all these instruments, all the peoples, nations, men of every language, they fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 8. Now, for this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans, so certain Babylonians came forward And they brought charges against the Jews. 
They responded and said, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, O king, live forever. Good way to greet a king, okay? You, O king, have made a decree, you've done it, that every man who hears the sound of the, of the, of the, of the instruments and, fall, and falls down, worship the golden image, but whoever does not fall down shall be cast in the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon. Namely, and they name them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O God, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. So that's the challenge. Their challenge was, bow down to my idol or die. It was that clear. That was their challenge in verses 1 through 12. So verses 1 through 12 is the challenge. Now, after the challenge in verses 1 through 12, we move to the second section. I call it the choice. Because now they have a choice to make. You can move up on the PowerPoint here. Now they have a choice to make. And the choice is this. It is to either compromise or stand firm. Which are they going to do? They're going to compromise or they're going to stand firm. Pick it up in verse 13. So Nebuchadnezzar in a rage gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, verse 14, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? In other words, you're rejecting my authority as well? Now, if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound, fall down and worship the image that I've made. But if you do not, you will immediately be cast into a midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of that? <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so he gives them another chance. He doesn't want to kill these guys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. Now that's interesting. Underline that. What, what they're saying is this, you know, we don't really need to give you an answer. You know, you know us. We've been serving in your court. We've been serving in the upper levels of your leadership. You know about our allegiance to our God. The implication of that statement is that they had a history of being known as loyal followers of their God. That they served Nebuchadnezzar in their job and they served him well and they did their job well, but yet they had a reputation. They knew that Nebuchadnezzar knew about their conviction. You know, it says, we don't, we don't really need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Whoa. But listen to the next statement. But, even if he does not, because they knew that they cannot presume upon what God might do. I love the fact that this teaches that they said, we know that our God is able. You know, protecting us from a fiery furnace, that's kind of like a class B miracle for our God. Okay, he, he like made the universe, okay? You know, you know he, you know, kept Jonah alive or most likely resurrected him after being three days in the belly of the great fish. I mean, our God specializes in miracles. So you don't understand. Our, this is not a problem for our God. We know that our God can deliver us from your furnace. 
But we also are humbled enough to know that we don't know what God's sovereign plan is for our lives. So if, I love this verse. It's my favorite verse in the passage. He says, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, that is before you fry us, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Boom, there it is. And then we see the outcome. And the outcome is in verses 19 to 30. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered because of them. In other words, you can see it on his face and he's ticked off now. Now they really ticked him off. So he answered, and here, here's what it is, by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times hotter than normal. In other words, okay, you just laid down the challenge. My God can protect you. you know, our God can protect us from this furnace. Okay, baby, let is, let's heat it up. So they take the fiery furnace that he's been using already and they heat it. He says, I want it seven times hotter. In other words, heat it to the max. So they heat it. So he answered and gives orders to heat it to to to, uh, to heat it up seven times. He commanded certain valiant war. Oops, yeah, here, yeah. He commanded. Uh, lost my place. Certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied. These men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes. And they were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And for this reason, because of the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew the men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In other words, when they opened the door to throw the guys in, it was so hot it killed the king's guys who were throwing them in. Now that's hot, right? You get in the picture? But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. And then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded, and he stood up in haste, and he said to his officials, Was it not three men that we cast bound into the fire? And they replied to the king, Certainly, king, there were three. And he said, Look, I see four men, and they're loosed. They're not tied up. And they're walking about in the midst of the fire unharmed. And the appearance of the fourth looks, uh, he kind of looks like a, a son of the gods. The Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire and he responded and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, he calls out to the guys, uh, come out, you servants of the most high God and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire, and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's high officials gathered around, and they saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on their bodies, nor was the hair of their head even singed, nor were their trousers damaged, their clothes were not even damaged, nor did they even have the smell of the fire on them. They don't even smell smoky. It's incredible. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, 
who put their trust in him, violating the king's command even, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. He has a new decree now. (laughs) I make a decree that any people, nation, tongue, that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. Let's use a different technique, okay? Let's tear them limb from limb and their houses reduced to rubbish inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. They get a promotion. End of story. So why does God record this incredible story for us? It's not too hard to understand the story. It comes down pretty clear, doesn't it? So what's the significance? That's what I want to spend the rest of our time uh, taking apart here. What's the significance, both then and now? Um, You know, most of you right now, you're probably thinking, well, yeah, I'm just kind of glad I don't live in that day or that time. Or even if you fast forward to today, many of you think, you know, I have no interest in working for the government of Iraq or Syria and all of a sudden having ISIS as my boss. Uh, I'm not living there. I don't plan to move there. So, you know, this probably does apply. And by the way, it does apply because there are Christians around the world who face the very scenario I started with, who are faced with decisions of life and death as to whether or not they deny their faith in Christ and bow down to false gods or don't. This really happens today. Christians in Iraq are facing it even now. So we need to pray for them. But but as we think about it in terms of our life here in calm and peaceful and let us love the world, Encinitas and Carlsbad and Del Mar and La Jolla, I mean, this this is a pretty peaceful place. How, How does this apply to our lives? And as I tried to process that prayerfully this week, um, here's what I came up with. So you engage with it with me. Number one, do we have a challenge like they had? And I would be so bold as to say yes, but different. You know, our challenge is a challenge or a temptation to worship false gods. It exists. I've given you an outline. If you want to take a few notes to help you apply this this week, you can. Here's two tips under this. Number one, To understand that we do have a challenge, number one, be aware of the gods of our culture. I think sometimes we as Christians, uh, we we are susceptible to failure in the area of standing and being loyal to our God. If we buy into the idea that, you know something, there are no 90-foot golden statues that I'm required to bow down to. So there are no false gods in our culture. We've kind of outlived this. But in reality, let me define what a false god is. Uh, A god with a little g. Here's my definition of gods with little g's. In other words, gods that don't really exist. Uh, Here's my definition. Uh, It's whoever or whatever I submit to. If I submit to something or someone, I am letting them be my god, right? Does that make sense? So if I choose to follow them, if I choose to sacrifice to them, if I say, I want to sacrifice to you so that you give something back to me, that's what people did in, in, with the false gods and the false idols. So whatever I submit to, sacrifice to, or fall in love with above all else and worship is my God. Now when I process it that way, God took me to the New Testament because God is always smarter than Dale. Can you say amen? 
Yeah, don't say it too quickly, but yeah, I, you should know that. God is always smarter than me, so I always look to the Word of God to say, does God talk about false gods that tempt us to love them and worship them more than we should? And sure enough, here's the passage. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. I call it the 21st century American idols. And it's not a TV show in this case. Here we go. And he talks about three things. He says, you need to love God only, but you need to resist the temptation. He calls them three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. For these things are from our world, not from God. And he says, so stay true to your God, not these other lusts and loves. And he names three of them. The lust of the flesh, which I would call hedonism, which is the worship of pleasure, is that I live to feel good. If it makes me feel good, it must be good. And, 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 you know, I want more pleasure in life. Uh, The lust of the eyes, I think, refers mostly to I see, I want. That's materialism. That's the worship of possessions. Because I'm on a roll with these P words, okay, I had to play it out. Sorry, that's what I do. Uh, you know, the, 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 the boastful pride of life is what I call the God of success. And it's kind of a, a different, I couldn't pick a single word, so I picked three. I call it the triple worship of prestige or status, power or influence. Feels good when I have more power, more control, and then popularity when people like me. Does that make sense? So those three areas usually are at the root of why I want to be successful. It makes me more prestigious, powerful, and popular. Materialism gives me more possessions. Uh, hedonism gives me more pleasure. So I think that these, according to 1 John chapter 2, are the great world. That's what the world offers us. That's what the world tempts me to love and tempts me to worship and to, to love instead of loving my God. 1 John chapter 2 lays it out very clearly. Now when I see this, I realize, you know something, this is very cross-cultural. This was true in the day of the Babylonians, and it's true today. Because it appeals to the, to the, to the lusts of the human heart. And that doesn't really change. You know, we're not as different from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as you might think. Because the reality is they were tempted not only to bow down, not to die, but they were men of influence. I love the fact it gets overlooked in this story a lot of times. These were not some poor, desperate Jewish slaves. These were three of the most powerful government leaders in Babylon. So they had prestige, power, and popularity. They had possessions, and they had the opportunity for pleasure, undoubtedly. So these were men who had the good life, as we would call it. You know, and when I put it in that context, I begin to realize, wow, you know, if they, all they had to do for a moment, they go back to worshiping their God the next day, they just needed to, to just do the bow down thing and say, okay, you know, it's just a hunk of gold anyway, I'll bow down to your silly 90 foot statue and save my life, but also save my job, save my wealth, save my success. See, these temptations are very real. Just recently, I remember meeting with a member of the church who basically said, you know, Dale, my choice is pretty clear. According to my boss, I need to quit being so hung up on ethics and get the job done. And if I'm not willing to lie to this potential customer to get the the deal signed, then 
he's going to be ticked off, I'll probably lose my job. I remember talking to a person that was in the education business in California a few years ago, and they said, Dale, yeah, I'm set to move up in the administrative ladder of the school district of my public school. He says, but the reality is, if, if, if my district superintendent knows that I have strong Christian convictions on certain moral issues that are not popular today, he said, I will never advance to the next level. So I have to decide. Who am I? So there are areas of our lives in which I just want you to be aware there are gods in our culture that, that want us to abandon our primary love for Christ and begin to worship them, which leads to the second question. And that is, but, but I, I struggled with this. I thought, so how do I know whether I'm, I'm, I'm worshiping these false gods? Because I don't, they're not statues. So, you know, number one, be aware that the gods of our culture do exist. But secondly, be aware that our sacrifices to these gods are very subtle. And I think most, usually in my life at least, and maybe you can identify, the temptation to worship these false gods is very subtle. It's usually not as big a deal as, okay, it's the fiery furnace or this. But, but what, I, what I face at least is, is this. I believe that do I ever alter what I believe or how I behave in order to have more pleasure, possession, or power? Now let me say that again. Do I ever alter, compromise my beliefs or my behavior? Kind of just compromise a little bit in order to have more of these things that I enjoy. More financial success, more, more, more advancement in my career, more, more popularity among my friends. Is popularity the greater God or is your Jesus Christ? Is possessions and a career advancement your greater God or is Jesus Christ? You know, so when I put it in that way, I could even apply it to myself because even as a pastor, I love what I do and I love serving here at Seacoast and I love serving my church. And then what if I find myself in a place where I feel like, you know something, in order to make everybody happy, I need to change what I believe or alter what I teach in order to not offend people. Because I don't want to lose my ministry, even. See, your ministry, your job, your career, your possessions, all of that, anytime I am compromising my beliefs or my behavior for more money, success, or popularity, in some way I'm beginning to worship them as God. So I think our challenge is indeed real. At least it is for me. So what's our choice? How do we try to prepare ourselves to live in this culture? And let me give you just two quick tips. Number one, I think what they did, it was clear that they had a pattern of focusing and, and loving their God. We don't have a lot of it recorded, but when they say to the king, you know, you really don't need for us to answer this because you know us well enough to know that we are loyal to our God. So they, they had a track record of developing what I call a loyal love for their God. And what it means is you and I, before the temptation to compromise comes or the pressure to compromise comes, we need to nurture 
a loyal love for our God. We need to decide who it is we love and live for and practice that. And us, in our case, it's Jesus Christ. Now, let me say something else. I really kind of tried to struggle with the reality of that this week because there are other things that I love. Uh, I love my wife. I love my family. So, And I think God wants me to love my wife and family, but yet I think my wife and family can become a little God if I begin to put them ahead of Jesus Christ. Uh, I love my ministry. I think it can become a God. I think every career in this room, every job, has the potential to become a little God. If, if you know, and how do I know how you know? Uh, how do I know whether it's wrong to love and enjoy things of this world? And when is it crossing over from enjoying them in an appropriate way to an inappropriate worship? And as I did it, I came up with this statement. Maybe it'll help you. Here's my tip. It helps me to see all the appropriate pleasures of my life as gifts from God so that I worship the giver, not the gifts. Now just soak on that a little bit. That may be the takeaway for some of you today. You know, is it, I really believe it's okay for me to, to, to really love my wife, to love my family, to love what I do for a living, whether I'm a pastor or whether I'm an engineer or a researcher or a, or a janitor or a, or, or a coach. It doesn't matter. You know, I think loving what you do is okay. I think God wants you to, to have passion for what you do, whatever he places you to do in life. And so, you know, it's okay. I think it's okay for me to love and enjoy college football because that's coming up in one more week as my Mountaineers play the Alabama Crimson Tide. Would you pray for us? Yeah, see, I know from that laughter what you think about that game. Next Saturday, 11.30, ESPN. I haven't been thinking about it, though. Okay, now, now, now is that my God? Have I let that become my God? Because some, for some people, sports can become a God. And see, here's what God convinced me of. I need to remember that every other lesser thing that I love in life, Love my family, love my job, love my sports, love my team, love, love you know, I, I, love the, I, lo- I loved going on vacation with my wife two weeks ago. I love this. I love a lot of things, and I think it's okay until my love for any of those cause me to compromise my beliefs or my behavior. In other words, until I love them so much that I no longer live for Jesus Christ. I no longer make Christ my number one priority in how I use the things that make up life. And by the way, if you want to measure those, they're easy. Let me go on to the next point, you'll see it. And that is, practice regular rhythms of Christ-centered worship. Build your life around Christ-centered worship. Next point. And you'll see that, okay? See, when I practice the regular rhythms of Christ-centered worship, it helps me guard my heart. Now, what those are, we laid them out in a recent sermon series right before Easter. Number one, offer yourself as a living sacrifice to Jesus Christ. That's Romans chapter 12. Offer your time to God as a serving sacrifice of Christ. Romans 12, 3 through 8. And offer your money as a giving sacrifice to God. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6. You know, these passages, what they remind me is this. The discipline of weekly worship on Sunday, which I didn't even put there, 
is, is a healthy spiritual discipline just like waking up every morning and saying, you know, God, whatever happens today, I'm Yours. I'm Your living sacrifice. Let's do life today. Use me as You wish. See, if you pray that prayer every morning, you're laying yourself out to God. And then you go do life and you work hard. And, and if your job is working, even for the government like they did, do it well to the glory of God. So you do everything you do for the glory of God and for Jesus Christ, praying that God might use you in your real everyday life. Not just on a missions trip, but in your everyday mission as a follower of Jesus when you go to work in sales or marketing or this or that, whatever you do. You're a living sacrifice. You give God your time and say, God, use me. You give God the priority in your money and your budget. I believe deeply that the very first check every Christian ought to write every month or when, you know, is, is a tenth or a portion you've prayed and decided on. For me, it's a tenth or more of whatever God gives me. Why do I do that? I do it as a spiritual discipline. Do I feel like doing it every month? No, not necessarily. But I do it as a spiritual discipline that helps me focus my heart. Jesus said, where your money is, there your heart will be also. Where your time is, there your heart will be also. You know, so where I choose to invest my time, my money, my energy, my life helps attract my heart. And then as it attracts my heart, my heart prompts me to even do it more joyfully out of the heart. You know, so it's a, it's a cycle. But the point is this. Regular rhythms of Christ-centered worship like these and others will help you prepare if there comes a day when the gun gets put to your head. If you haven't been doing these things, you're going to fail the test. Number three, and that is ask often, who's my king and where's my kingdom? See, I think these Jews knew that even though they were living in Babylon, Babylon was not their home. So they lived according to the values of their true king and the true kingdom they were a part of. Same thing for us as Christians. California and the U.S. is not your home. We need to live with a deep understanding that we serve a risen king and we're a part of a heavenly kingdom that is eternal and way more important than any of the gods of this little world. And as I do that, wow, it helps me focus my life and make good choices. So always remember that read a quote by Woodrow Wilson that probably had nothing to do with Christianity, but I like the quote when he said, I'd rather fail in a cause that will someday triumph than triumph in a cause that will someday fail. And when you serve Jesus Christ in today's world, no matter what happens in your life, I love that, even if God lets us get cremated in the furnace, you need to know that we are serving a cause that will someday triumph because our God wins in the end. And knowing that you're a part of the kingdom of God and, 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 and expanding the kingdom of God as He uses you in your life. See, that's worth living for. It's also worth dying for. That's the point of the story. So the outcome was obvious. We're going to dwell on that. They trusted in an omnipotent God that always delivers whatever you need. You know, they, they believed their God could do it. 
And we need to believe that our God is a miracle-working God. They also trusted and submitted to a sovereign God that would always make the right choice or the right call. So even if God let them get cremated, they knew it would be for the glory of God. And that, third point, is their highest good. Knowing that God's glory is our greatest good. Want God to work it all for good? Let Him work it for His glory. And if He is glorified in the end of the story, we say, Amen. And even if it's our death, then we'll see you in heaven. That's a great way to live. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for the wisdom of your word and the challenge it is to my life. I'm sure to every life here. Thank you, Father, that you understand us so well. And I pray that uh, this week you would, uh, you would lead us to, uh, to nurture a love that is strong enough that it would stand the test and the temptations of our gods of our culture. Thanks for your incredible grace that loves us just the way we are. And thank you for your word and the fact that you are worthy of our trust. Father, as we turn our hearts now to worship you, Father, we worship you even as we give to you. Even how we use our time and our money, let it be a reflection of not a low grade, but a intense devotion to the God that we serve. So we give to you with generosity in Christ's name. Amen.